Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industries in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. And today on the podcast, we welcome to the show Jim Rogers. Thanks for having Jim, me. Welcome. I'm going to uh, do a quick little intro here. Uh, Jim is part of the Seller Doer Academy or, or the owner of Seller Doer Academy uh, and has written a number of books on the same subject. Jim helps engineering, architecture, and construction companies get more sellers selling to attract and retain top talent and take market share from their competitors. He is the author of the books, Becoming a Seller Doer, Succeed at Business Development, and Take Command of Your Career, as well as Win More Work, How to Write Winning AEC Proposals. He is the president of the consulting firm Unbridled Revenue. I love that that uh, company name. And the co-creator of the Seller Doer Academy, which helps companies develop their next generation of seller doers and turn their current seller doers into rainmakers. Interestingly enough, a graduate of the United States or of the University of North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, Jim may be the only person in the world to have been present at the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium when Hank Aaron hit home run number 715 and to have walked down the graduation aisle mere steps behind Michael Jordan. That's probably the coolest fun fact I've ever heard. Born in Montana, Jim has lived in Atlanta, New York City, Boston, and San Diego before settling in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm going to make a general apology if uh, thunder and lightning gets picked up on the uh, on the podcast here. We got a little storm going on. So, Jim. I can hear it. You know, BJ, I know you're about to ask me a question, but somebody did an introduction similar to that for me recently. And... The, the woman who introduced me when she finished said, well, so I don't know who Hank Aaron is, <laughs> but it sounded pretty cool to me. <laughs> I think that's there might be some kids who have to Google Michael Jordan. I don't know. Uh, I hope you know. not. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, I'm a, I'm a Duke fan. My wife's a UNC fan. I'm Duke because Coach K was a West Point grad. I love Michael Jordan. My wife, who's the UNC fan, is not a huge fan of Michael Jordan. So... Uh, he's an interesting I assume topic. That's for in my off house. the court, yeah. I assume that's for off the court, not on. And the that's court. right. Yeah, I think she she doesn't like anybody with an ego. So she's her job on earth is to keep me humble. Um, <laughs> so Jim, welcome to the show. Seller doers, probably one of my most favorite topics to uh, discuss. So I I'm excited. I may be a buyer of your services after this uh, this podcast. But tell us, how has your career evolved? How did you end up going from UNC Chapel Hill behind Michael Jordan to uh, creating the Seller Doer Academy? You know, interestingly, I had always planned to go to law school through four years of college. And I got to the end and I took the LSAT. I wasn't happy with my score. I probably could have gotten into a couple of places that I wanted to go. But I thought, you know what? I don't know what else is out there. I grew up in a town of tobacco town in North Carolina of 2000 people. And I thought, well, the only, the only people we had to look up to there were doctors, lawyers, and tobacco warehouse owners. Those were the wealthy people in town. Now a pharmacist, you can add pharmacists to the list now. But, <laughs> but so I was like, you know what, I really, and my dad was Delta airline pilot. So I was like, I don't know what else is out there. Let me go, let, let me, let me, let me see if there's something else that I can do before I decide to go to law school, which I think is a good decision for anybody who's thinking about grad school. 
And I asked my roommate who was in business school, uh, undergraduate, I said, so you guys just had the career fair. Tell me what kind of companies were people interested in? And he said, well, there's this firm called Arthur Anderson and their drop stack was this big. And then there was IBM. And then, you know, you kind of kept going. They had the biggest stack and I'd never heard of them. And he explained what they were. They started out as an accounting firm. I said, well, I don't, I'm not an accounting major. I'm not in the business school. And he goes, well, they have this thing called information technology, information systems. And, and I'd already missed all that on-campus recruiting, but sometimes being late is good. So I sent my resume to somebody who worked, was an accountant, was a first year working for him in Washington, D.C. She said, well, the chief recruiting officer sits in the office next door to me. I'll put his, your resume on his desk. I go up and have a visit with him. And he says, you know, we're not hiring in the D.C. office, but I see you've got Atlanta and Charlotte as backup offices. We're not hiring there either. But we are hiring in New York City. And I said, oh, I would hate that. And he said, yeah, I know. I like to, I have to go up there on business. and I really hate it. So just being there for a day and back, but I can never see myself living there. I said, do you have, I said, I was being facetious. I would love to live in New York City. And he said, well, you just dropped a couple of notches in my book, but I'll send your resume up there and we'll see. So I got hired into something that I hadn't trained for in college. I wasn't a software engineer. Most people come from in software engineering, computer science background. So I was a little bit miscast there and was, you know, on a, on a good day, I was, you know, a C player, maybe a B minus player and soft as a software engineer, but it served me well. I learned how to, because I'm not in the, from the AEC industry, I learned to use that part of my brain that speaks engineer. And because my dad was a pilot, he was a mechanical engineer in, in school. He really emphasized science and math. So I really worked those muscles pretty hard and that has served me well again in, the, in this industry to have exercised what may not have been the strongest part. I may be a little bit more right, right brain that I would have given myself credit for. So anyway, it's kind of how I ended up at, in New York City as a 21 year old working for a software engineering firm. And there's a, there's more of that story that got me here where I am today, but I'll stop right there for well, now. Well, I, I think that's where we need to, to dig more into. So how do you go from a software engineering firm uh, and pivot to, well, I mean, in order to create Seller Doer Academy, how'd you get exposure in, was it, was it just the AEC space that you started in or did you think you could sell it elsewhere? Talk to us about kind of that entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, like, like almost everything in, in life, it was an accident. <laughs> what, what do they say? If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, you right? Go. So this was not planned at all. I, I left my well-paying job in New York City in 2000 to start a soft to move across country to San Diego and start a software company. Clearly, I didn't look at the map right because San Diego was not in Northern California. It was not in Silicon Valley. <laughs> and I resigned on March 1, 2000. And I think on the 11th, the dot-com bubble burst. So after two years with the angel and investors that I had, I just kind of, I knew it wasn't going to make it. And so I had to go back in and, and get back into consulting and was doing what I'd been doing for a while before I left Accenture, which was organizational change management, which is how do you get people to do something new to make the firm better, whether that's adopt new practices, policies, procedures, technology. And I, I like to think of it as, as getting people to do things that they don't want to do, which is change, even if it's good change, change for the better. It's hard to let go of old ways of doing things. 
So I learned a lot about what it takes to persuade people to, to help leaders figure out how to lead people through change. That was my job for 25 years before I had that little, the little uh, hiccup with the, the failed software. And I wear this badge proudly that I was a failed software or, or .com startup back in the early 2000s. So what I did learn during that process trying to raise money was how to tell my story in, in 60 seconds or five minutes or one, half a page or one page document or a five or, or 200 page business uh, business plan. And so I got really good at being able to tell a story in, in short order and make it persuasive and compelling. So fast forward, you know, this was, was about 10 years ago, I'm, I'm, I'm a road warrior doing the kind of consulting I was just describing, organizational change management consulting, which was really helping firms with thousands and tens of thousands of people adopt new software at that point in my career. And I was I wasn't happy. I wasn't great at it, but it was lucrative. There weren't a lot of people like me. So I kept kind of get like a Godfather three. Every time I tried to get out, they pulled me back in with a lucrative, with a lucrative project. So, so I was sitting in a hotel room trying to figure out how to stabilize my income because these projects were, you know, sometimes would go up and down. So I, I could go in between projects a couple of months without printing an invoice. I'd start getting questions from my wife, you know, <laughs> Why don't you take a full-time job, get a corporate job with benefits and a regular paycheck? <clears throat> and at that point, I didn't want to go back into that world. So I was like, what can I do sitting in a hotel room to level out my income, at least have a base. So when I have these spikes, I don't get those questions anymore. And it was proposal writing because I knew how to tell working in state and local government at Accenture, which was again, Arthur Anderson, when I started, I knew how to tell, I, I knew how to sell. Right. And so I've, I just by accident talked to somebody at church one day and he told me he was a civil engineer. Do you have to write proposals? Yeah. I said, let me see one. He said, okay. And I told him what I would do differently with the proposal. And he was like, that's pretty cool. And next thing he introduces me to an executive director of ACEC. I'm speaking at a banquet and yada, yada. Here I am today after writing the book, win more work, how to write winning AEC proposals that 10 years ago kind of kept me in this industry to stay. So what, if you can just give us a quick picture of what did you see in that proposal that you, you told him you would do differently? Oh, he left the people out of it. All he talked about was the technical features, the solution. So I suspect, and this is what I tell anybody who writes a, a kind of a, a mediocre proposal and they win, is you already won it. You already had it won before the RFP came out. I said, because if I'd worked on the other side of this and the of one, with one of your competitors and the playing field was level, they hadn't made a decision. I could have, I could have beaten you. You wouldn't have won. And he was a buddy. So I could say that to him and it wasn't arrogant. Your your wife wouldn't like that, but I wasn't really being that, that cocky or arrogant, arrogant with him. I was, it made him laugh. But what he didn't have in there was, you know, what are the kind of headaches that this project would create uh, are you going to get phone calls from city council people? Or are you going to get a call from the mayor, get called on the carpet for stuff that was going on during construction? It was already an unpopular project to begin with. And uh, I said, if you would focus more on some of the pain points that the client was going to have and not just what drainage, what the drainage issues were going to be for laying down this new sidewalk in a Tony neighborhood where you were going to chew up people's front yards where there'd never been a sidewalk before. 
I said, you know, you're, you're, you're missing some things that are going to matter to that project manager on the other side. And that could distinguish you. So, Jim, you, you talked about the technical benefits and not focusing on the people in the proposal. But the thing that stood out to me most is he wasn't in a level playing field. If he had been, if he was not in a level playing field, uh, you know, maybe a competitor would have would have had something better to offer. Um, so how much of your seller doer academy or your approach in, in teaching seller doers focuses on the proposal versus all of the other stuff that goes into influencing and winning work? Good question. So when I, when I started doing the proposal consulting and I wrote the book, what I learned was that I was struggling to get clients to answer basic questions of my clients to ask, answer basic questions about their clients and what their personal buyer values were, what they cared about for a particular project, because it could change from one project to the next. And they were so dialed into the solving the technical problem. They have three pages for an approach section. And so they try to jam in as many technical features as they can because they're afraid to leave anything out because you know the sin of omission looks they think it looks bad in the proposal so, so but what i realized was they couldn't answer the questions about the decision makers and so after several years of just doing proposal consulting and training i thought you know i didn't really think i was going to be in the sales training business but if they don't know more about their clients and what they care about generally than for a particular project they're always going to be at risk of losing to somebody. It could just be the, the wheel of fortune. It's their turn. And you see this a lot in DOT or municipal work where, well, they haven't gotten one in a while and everybody's kind of qualified. It's their turn, right? So, and I don't like that. I don't like being on the wheel of fortune. And the way to break that, that cycle is to, it's not that you're gathering intel that shows up in your proposal that makes a difference. It's asking better questions and having better listening skills during the, the business development phase, which is when you know there's a contract or project coming down the pike to the point that an RFP comes out or whatever the solicitation is, if it's, if it's a letter proposal because you're, you're in private sector and not public sector world, right? So it's that middle stages where two thirds of these things are won and lost and the, the, where the, where the relationship tips the scales or makes the playing field unlevel is how good a job you did at gathering requirements beyond the technical requirements. Cause all of these guys are good at gathering technical requirements. You're no better than your competitors are usually. So it's really understanding the buyer values. And if that stuff doesn't even make it into the proposal, so what the reason you got the advantage, was because you listened to the client and you asked questions that your competitors didn't, they, uh, they liked you. They preferred you. I won't say they liked you more, but they felt like you cared about them and cared about them and their success, not just the success of the project itself. Got it. Well, I'll give you an example. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I have, I have uh, more than exa an example question coming. So okay. give me the example. Yes. Yeah, so one would, one, one question would be, it, what, what does this project mean for you personally? So how might that play out based on different answers you get? So you might have somebody that says, well, you know, I'm a couple of years away from retirement. This project could be two or three years. I want to be there to cut the ribbon. 
not my the guy that takes my job, right? So what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about how you stay on schedule and how you relentlessly stay on schedule. I might have an adult conversation say, look, if you want this to stay on schedule, you might have to do it in phases. You might not be able to get all the scope that you want in the first first phase, or we're going to have to do things creatively that you may not be comfortable with to do things in parallel, right? To be able to get something done. So that's the kind of conversation that's rich because it's about the relationship. And somebody else might say, you know, they maybe they're 35. Hey, this is a career maker for me. Right? This is my 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 step to get the promotion instead of my one of my colleagues. And part of what I need to do is is impress my boss. I need to learn a lot. I got a lot to learn as part of this project, but there can't be, I can't have things go terribly wrong with this. So if I have to be involved every step of the way, then I want to, I want to be involved more than I normally would be in another project. That's going to play out in your proposal, but it's going to play out in that conversation because then you get a chance to say, so what does that look like? You know, we've worked together before on other projects. How is this one different? When you start to have that kind of conversation, you're making a, a human connection with them. And it doesn't, this is not sales technique stuff that only professional salespeople can do. This is but good consultative selling. Right. Well, it's, it's just consultative selling and understand the whole project, not just what you're trying to get done in the built environment. Right. That's, uh, that's my take is it's always one, you want to do business with people that you get along with. So I, when I'm having those conversations, I'm actually interviewing them as much to figure out if we can get along. Uh, it, like, do we see the world similarly? Can we vibe? Um, now, there's going to be some times where a client may not be, but I, I want to be aligned core value and principles uh, with the clients. And then secondarily is understanding expectations. And to your point, how do they view this project? Um the the thing I was going to say to you is because you talked about thirty second and you know five minute elevator pitches, um, I was actually going to see you know I I'm a potential buyer of your services, uh, so you know let's let's get the thirty second commercial on the Seller Doer Academy and then ask me some of the questions you would ask a typical potential buyer of your services. Yeah, flip the script so, here a little bit. Yeah, and I would flip the script back, which is to say, so, you know, to to tell me why it is you think you need somebody's services to help you grow your business. And what's so what's going on? Give me an example of, you know, if you're thinking about training, give me an example of what somebody's doing now and what you really and what the result, what the implications of that are. What do you want them to do differently? And then what is that going to mean for your business? So I always like to give, give me a couple examples. This happened today and yesterday. Give me an example of what's going on that okay. you think needs to be improved. So I think that as part of a continuous improving organization, number one, you have to continuously improve. So I put a very high value on training, so much so that I've talked about on the podcast before. We've 45 minutes every Tuesday, MCFA University. And we talk about project management topics, we talk about seller-doer topics, we talk about project highlights, technical skill sets, and it's it's both a team-building exercise because we have different you know technical experts and senior project managers uh, talk about what they're doing and their, their background so people get more familiar with not their resume on a sheet of paper, but their resume in, in actual experience. So number one, I already prioritize training. 
I believe that people need to be reminded more often than they need to be taught. And I think that when you remind them with different voices and different styles that the, the same lessons that you may be trying to teach from BJ's voice may come differently because Jim Rogers has a unique style or has experience teaching other seller doers. So it's not BJ, oh, he's the owner of the company. Of course he wants us to be seller doers. No, it's like, hey, this is Jim Rogers coming in saying, hey, across the country, I'm dealing with uh, professionals and consultants um, selling. And to your point, you know, I think as soon as you take selling out of it, I mean, seller doers is what we call it in the in the uh, industry, but it's really problem solving and people understanding. And I think, you know, just hearing what you said about, you know, your style and what you're teaching uh, makes your your style attractive to me. What do I hope to get out of it? I think that by growing our company, we create more opportunity for more professionals to come here. And there's a certain level of growth that when you get there, you pick up momentum and you overcome the inertia of small business. And I'm very focused on that because I want people to have upward mobility inside of our company. Right now, entrepreneurial, small business, 40 people, we've you know doubled in size over the last two years, but I'm trying to attract in the next generation of seller doers. And I think that you know our approach is a little little more intentional and unique. And I'm trying not to allow a big engineering culture to come in. I'm trying to maintain kind of an entrepreneurial mindset. And the only way to do that is to teach people out of the gates that that's our style. Those are my answers so far. All right. What didn't I well, answer? You, <laughs> I, yeah. And, and I'm not sure I could propose a solution to you, but I, let, me, let me point out a couple of things that I thought were interesting about what you said. And I'll use a phrase that I use a lot, which is training is an event. Learning is a process. So what's cool about what you're doing is 45 minutes every Tuesday or Thursday is you're bringing this back to the forefront because part of this is you could do training. You do, let's say you do a two day boot camp or workshop, which I don't believe in and I don't, I don't offer because I know it doesn't work is within 72 hours, you've forgotten 70% of what you heard. And just because you heard it doesn't mean you can take it and put it into practice either. If you haven't had a chance to, to try out the skill and get feedback in a training environment, a lot of people just impart information by the fire hose and they don't actually work on helping somebody develop skills. Most of that happens on the job. And the way I ask this question to people is, did you learn to be an engineer in engineering school? And sometimes people kind of nod and then I'll say, well, really? Did you learn engineering in engineering school or did you learn to be an engineer in engineering school? And they're like, oh no, I learned to be an engineer on the job. Right? And that's part of the learning as a process part of this. The one thing I thought was neat about what you said is the maybe refresher or reminder. I think you said a reminder. So that's bringing it back to the forefront. One of the things that we do in our program that is to my knowledge unique is knowing that people need reminder refresher we send out a weekly uh, sometimes multiple emails a week once we get through a training program and it has a nugget that was a reminder of some of the content that they heard during a session so if it's on proposal writing you might get a tip that says you know in your cover letter make sure that the first question you answer is why why is this project important and so that might hit somebody at the time that they're sitting down to work on a cover letter for a proposal or an approach section for a proposal. 
and and maybe they're not but at least they got that back in front of them there's a better chance that they'll remember it later if they've read my book if they heard some training if they work with me on a proposal and if they get that email so i do have that ongoing refresher that's in there because again training is an event learning is a process all right um what are the formats that you sell your services just out of curiosity and, and again for a bit of a commercial on on what you do yeah, so there are a couple of different things. One is one is the academy, you know, the Seller Doer Academy is a service of unbridled revenue, and that was built to be the first virtual only business development training program in the industry. Now, everybody, because of COVID, has gone back and retrofitted their training that they've been doing for years or decades face to face. They've gone back to to re-engineer that. Ours was built this way out of the gate, so it's designed to work the way we are right now, which is virtual. And I've tried to replicate the way that you would deliver good training. And I experienced the best training in the world working at Arthur Anderson and Accenture because we were up there with IBM, GE, anybody that's known as a world-class professional development organization. So I know what that looked like and I tried to replicate that in this world. So the, the Academy has three main courses and I mix and match depending on what the client needs are. And sometimes even within one client, they have different groups of people who have different needs. So an example is we loosely map to the client life cycle. So there's one on lead generation, which is early on. How do you get recognized? How, to, how do you get yourself out in your expertise out in the world and your brand out in the world so that people know who you are and what you do? And they might go, oh, huh, these guys might be folks that I could work with someday. The middle stages are the business development part of this, which is when there's a real opportunity, if it's a new prospect, now it's a hot lead. How do you take that opportunity through to the point that somebody says, you know what, we really want you to propose on this. Or if it's a, you know, if it's a public procurement, then of course the RFP comes out. So whichever one of those happens, that's the end stage of that business development cycle. So I teach people how to, how to conduct a business development call. And that could just be a check-in call with a client that you haven't, you've been working on a project with, but you haven't had time to talk about the other stuff. What else is going on in the bigger picture? It could be a new client. How do you get to know somebody new and not just jump in and start to prove how smart you are as an engineer, right? The third part of this is the closing the sale, which is the writing effective proposals and superior proposals and doing a better job at shortlist interview presentations. So that's the tail end of that life cycle. So again, you could think about that as generating leads, the middle stages, existing or new business development with opportunities that you want to turn into pursuits. And so that in the final stage, you get a chance to close those. So I have a curriculum that maps to those three stages. And a client may say, well, you know, we've got our DOT guys, our, our transportation guys over here, but we've got our site civil guys that work with the land developers. The site civil guys don't write proposals. We don't need that course. But the DOT guys don't need the new business development part of it. They need to know how to network, right? But they don't need to, they're not hunting for new clients. If we want to, we want to go work for a DOT in adjacent state, we better buy another firm or open or move somebody over there and open an office because it's so parochial. That's not normally what we do. We don't do enough of it. We really need to focus on the middle stages where these things are typically won or lost and writing superior proposals. And then I have firms that go through all the whole program, send people through all three of those courses. It's a little unusual to have them go through all three. So those are two hour workshops once a week for either six to 12 weeks. Sometimes there's a gap week in there. We tackle things like, 
everything from how to use LinkedIn effectively or do face-to-face -face networking effectively to how to get, uh, how to set an appointment with a dream client if it's going to be somebody new. And that's kind of a, the, the front, the, the, the lead generation part of it. There's some other things. How do you market without marketing? How do you sell without selling, I call it. And the middle stages are around how do you conduct that, that call, that face-to-face that, that -face meeting with a client so that you gather intel and build a relationship in a way that your competitors won't. And that's the, that's the most important part of this, of this program. And I actually do a client simulation where we bring in a, an actual client or a simulated client and we do a business development call. They go on the first meeting I call discovery call, try to understand the client and their requirements for a project. We set, give them a one pager description of the project so they can prepare, have that first meeting. Then they have a week and they come back and they have a second meeting with them. And they present an approach, test for fit and ask for the business if they think they're a good fit. So that's a really cool part of the program is we give them an experiential, there's an experiential component of it. So they're not listening to me talk for two hours. And then I hope that they go put something into practice. Now they get a chance to try it out. And effective listening skills is a core the core it's, it's, five years ago when we created the academy we had zero time devoted to a lot of uh, effective listening skills now it's either three to four hours so it's usually two sessions out of our six to twelve week program depending on how much of the program we do a good session and a half maybe two sessions are on effective listening because if i told if i stripped all this down and somebody said you know what we don't have time to do your 12 week program, then what should we do? You know, do, do you want it to be marketing and, and how to generate leads and how to use LinkedIn and how to write proposals? I'd say, no, I teach you effective listening skills because that'll make you a better consultant. It'll make you a better employee, teammate, leader, uh, spouse, parent, neighbor, you name it. And actually had, we were doing this and one of the, I had a client that said, why are we spending so much time on listening skills? Why aren't we talking about business development? And, and he, he was, I think his implication was that you just, you can turn it on when you go talk to a client. I'm like, this effective listening is not something you turn on and off. You live and breathe it every single day. And, and so I think that's an essential part of, of success. So BJ, the, the academy training program I just described doesn't work for everybody. That's not what everybody needs. So sometimes people do just need to isolate say proposal training, but they need the, the hands-on help with writing a winning proposal. It could be a high stakes proposal. I don't always love coming in and doing those first because there's too much at risk. And if you don't win, then people are like, oh, we're disappointed we spent all that money. Think about it as a learning exercise. You could take a smaller proposal and use it as a, a, a low risk way to, to do training on the job with people. So they get coaching and feedback in my hands-on. I do shortlist interview presentation coaching. That's my first love. If I had to get up every Sunday and Saturday for the next 10 years of my career to do interview presentation, coaching and consulting, I would do it because that's how, how passionate I am about it. But I have something called the Rainmaker Mentoring Program, and that's where you need the more one-on-one -on -one experience. Maybe you've been doing it for a while with inconsistent results, or you don't know why you're successful or why you're failing. Then I get to work with people in an intense, like three or four month period of time where you've got somebody who's a senior project manager who just needs that extra help, that extra coaching. And we could be helping them put, to, uh, put together their, their approach to going to conduct a one-on-one -on -one 
meeting with a client or it could be helping them on a proposal, whatever they need when they need it. And we do that training and it's immersive so that we're doing it as they're doing the real work of business development and marketing and sales on the job. So, Jim, before we move on to the next question, where, where do people find out about you? I mean, we'll put it all in the show notes, but just in case somebody's only listening, your website? Sure. Sellerdoeracademy.com. Sellerdoeracademy.com. Perfect. I want to make sure we have that available. And I think we are going to be doing a giveaway around Jim's book. So keep an eye out for that on the LinkedIn post. Um, switching, you talked, you know, you had a career in change management. You've been teaching the Seller Doer Academy. Uh, we like teaching people leadership uh, and leadership lessons on the podcast. What is a leadership lesson um, that you can share with us uh, that you think will make an impact on people's careers? I think the biggest one in, in conducting the interviews that I did for the book, and I knew, knew this instinctively or may, maybe by learning as an organizational change management consultant, that the, the, one of the biggest barriers to success as a leader is not giving your people permission to fail and to see failure, to help them see that failure is feedback and to accept it as feedback and part of the learning process. And I don't mean you let somebody put some 28 year old in charge of a $10 million pursuit and they're leading the interview presentation team. That's not what I mean. Right. But letting people fail small, maybe they get a first time proposal, you know, maybe there are 28 and you let them take the lead on a $50,000 proposal. So, you know, there's a chance you still might have as good of odds as you would if you had a more, uh, somebody with 20 years of experience working on it, but let them learn from that experience and, and, and fail, you know, let them fail. Don't be, don't be afraid. And the other thing is that part of the reason people won't let them fail is because, you know, in this industry, if a bridge falls down, people get hurt or killed. Right. But not everything is that is, is that is, is that uh, dangerous. Right. So uh, the other thing that happens is people are afraid to let go of the kind of work that they're good at. And you're never going to be the kind of leader that you can be if you don't, if you don't think beyond the technical that you're good at and start thinking about how can I add the most impact to a client organization or to the industry? And the only way to do that is to develop the next generation of people to take over what you do, even if maybe you're better than they'll ever be at it, right? I think Calvin Coolidge or Woodrow Wilson, one of those guys could type faster than his secretary. Does that mean <laughs> that they should have typed all their correspondence? It's, it's interesting you say this because I was just talking about it yesterday with our team and you know, having an abundance mentality versus a scarcity mentality with work. I think that the other part of consulting is people know that as long as I have billable hours, I'm safe. Well, that's just self-preservation. It's not, right. it's not a growth mindset. And if you're not mentoring, if you're not delegating and, and failing at delegating is also a leadership development, you know, you got to start delegating somewhere and, you know, you'll find out that I give too much direction. Did I micromanage? Did I not give enough direction? Was I too loose? Uh, and I'm learning that all the time. Different people need different levels of, of delegation to, to learn. And I'm, I'm somebody that's pretty good at throwing something across the room and thinking I've communicated it clearly. Uh, so I say delegation's a two-way street. If you're not clear on what I'm asking for, make sure you ask me again. Yeah, and I'm, I'm ambivalent about the word delegate, by the way. It's because the way when people use it, they mean get something off my plate. 
Mm. If you have that mindset that you're just trying to get tasks off your plate, as opposed to I'm going to, I'm going to empower or engage people to take responsibility so that they are growing and developing. I'm mm. going to stretch them. So, so th this is one of the things that can, I like up this mind like, shift my, here. I use, I, cause I use delegate all the time. So you're, you're shifting my mind and I, I'm, I enjoy it. Mike Medock may have talked to you about this, which was, you know, he, he says one of the things that they, if people, I don't know what episode it was, there's an earlier episode a few weeks back with Mike, who I interviewed for, for the book, Becoming a Seller Doer. And we talked about one of the things that gets in the way is people say, well, I don't have enough time. How do you expect me to do business development? So one thing I would say to leaders is, you can do two things. One is you can reduce their utilization requirements if you really want them to do more BD, right? So put your put your big boy, big girl panties on and and take a little bit of hit there on the billable hours, right? And or you can say what what Mike said to me was that's that's a bunch of bull. You're telling me that you don't when you're face to face with a client for a design review meeting or a status meeting, you you don't have time to talk to them about other stuff so that you're become the front runner for other opportunities. And I was like, yeah, we were kind of feeding off each other. I said, yeah, whoever decided meetings were supposed to be an hour <laughs> because that gets in the way. So you, I don't have to expend any extra time or energy. If I show up for a status meeting and I say, I know we've got an hour, but I think we could get this done in 35, 40 minutes. If I promise to do that, we still hang around with me for 20 minutes so I can understand what else is you know, on your mind, what else you have going on that costs you nothing. Or how about on the way back from that three-hour ride from that that particular DOT district? Is there a district engineer on the way back that you could stop at five o'clock and have a glass of Burgundy beer, bourbon, or buttermilk, or whatever it is you drink at five o'clock, and catch up with somebody you haven't seen in six months? Does that cost you anything? Not really, maybe a little, but you're already going to be in the car. Right. So there are ways to be creative and to, and make good use of your time. You have to be you have to plan it out though. Right. So you have well, one thing I've learned is people don't get effective meetings training in this industry, which is crazy given how many meetings. <laughs> That's one of the first things they taught me as a 22 year old was the best practices for conducting a meeting, like agreeing on an agenda, the goals for the meeting and an agenda, yeah. sending it in advance so that then you're not surprising them with with things like you, you know, gave me a heads up on the kinds of things that you would ask me questions about. It's going to make for a better 45 minutes here today. Yeah. You want to do that with your clients? Totally agree. And then, and then the follow-up email with the meeting minutes that what we discussed. Uh, right. <laughs> right, right. Follow-up is key. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Uh, switching gears a little bit to some rapid fire questions, Jim. Uh, anything outside of the office or outside of the business that you are passionate about and involved in, nonprofits or otherwise? One here, I used to be on the on the board of CASA. I don't know if you've heard CASA. It's a court appointed special advocates. They help. They, they get volunteers and train volunteers to advocate for kids in the family court system to try to get them out of foster care or whatever you know home they may be in, and in, into an adoptive family. 
and it takes it takes money to have social workers who have to manage those volunteers could be me you anybody your, your wife could could go represent these kids in in family court you don't have to be an attorney they train you on what you need to do but the social workers have to manage those folks so you have to they have to be paid salaries hmm. right and there's training and there's a whole bunch of expenses so without the the the, the money that they need to uh, to be able to pay those salaries and it's hard to go out and raise money for them because you can't put a picture of those kids in an advertisement because they're anonymous. It's easier, it's easier to put a picture of a, of a injured dog and get people to give money to the humane society sometimes than it is to give money to these kids that are faceless and nameless. Wow. So that's a, that's a passion, a, a passion of mine. Super meaningful work. I even got my 16 year old daughter who's volunteering for him. Now. That's great. Jim, give me a favorite quote. I may not get this exactly right. And I, I've used this in the book because I think it's powerful and it ties back to what we just were talking about with, with uh, seeing failure as feedback is Winston Churchill said that success is moving from one failure to the next without loss of enthusiasm. I think you got that exactly right. And I do love that quote. Um, it's so true. And, and I think that it, to your point earlier, um, I've talked about this before. Engineers, attorneys, accountants, professionals are taught like don't make mistakes. You, you are the subject matter expert. You can't fail. Uh, and, and, you know, probably for insurance purposes, don't, don't say that you screwed up because there's a liability to it. Um, but people have to be able to make mistakes to learn and grow. And I'm, I can't agree more. And, and I and, think we do have to remind ourselves as leaders that that is how people learn. Um, so just make sure people fail small before they fail big. And, and to admit your mistakes with say a new prospect, right? To have the vulnerability and to, to not feel like you have to prove how smart you are and how perfect you are. So many engineers, I mean, these are executives who are in their sixties and maybe even early seventies who are like, well, we can't put that in the proposal because it shows that we, we, we might be weak. I'm like, you show that you're strong by admitting that you made a mistake on a job because then you get this chance to say, you know what, we made a mistake and we'll never do that again because now it's baked yeah. into our, pro our project management processes. It's on our checklist of things. It's like the Air Force debriefing a mission, right? What do they do when they come back? They all sit down and they go through the they debrief what was supposed to happen, what happened, what do we do to make it different next time? So that they learn from it because people make mistakes. Top Gun's top of mind right now for me. Yeah. We, I haven't watched the new one, but we, I just watched the, the original with the kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, after action reviews, we're, I'm an army guy. That, that's just part of and, – and to your point about vulnerability, the army teaches that to leaders that like there's no ego and there's no rank in that room. Like we're all here and part of leadership is checking, you know, any ego and saying what is in the best interest of the team what did i do wrong what could i do better uh to lead this organization in any given you know mission or situation uh outside of your own book any must read books or, or most recommended books in the industry my favorite book right now is exactly what to say and it is it is about persuasion, but it might surprise you 
that it, give, it gives you exactly some phrases to say, like there's, there's a kind of a pet phrase, which is, you know, in sales, I don't know if this is right for you, but, and I don't know if this is right for you, introduces some uncertainty. It actually, there's a little bit of mystery, what's gonna come after, but, but intrigues people and actually opens them up to consider what you're about to say. So there are a bunch of these phrases in there. It's not so much the words, it's their explanation of the setup and why the words work and why they connect to human beings. And there's not a bunch of psycho, you know, uh, what's firing off synapses in your brain kind of stuff that's behind it. It's just straightforward, connect with anybody who wants to win people over to sell their ideas. It doesn't have to be selling services. It's a real, real powerful book. It's the best sales book ever. And I get it on audiobook. A lot of times I get the audiobook, the Kindle version and the print version. That's one I have all three. I like to listen to that one in the car sometimes. I like to have one handy because I just want to pull something out, read for 10 minutes because I'm writing and I get inspired by reading something when it's time to write. And then the Kindle when I'm on the plane, you know, so I read on my phone. I don't have a Kindle anymore. Yeah. Um, the other part of Audible is you can listen. You can listen at a uh, fast pace until you get to the part that you remembered you wanted to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Bookmarks. Uh, Dead or alive, if you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? What would you do? Well, we talked about Michael Jordan. The, re the reason I put Michael golf Jordan... Golf or fishing? What's that? I said, would you golf or fish with him? Yeah, how about 20 years ago? <laughs> so, so here, Ali, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change this up a little bit. I'm going to say, who could I be? Which one of these three people mm. could I be for a day? Okay, I like I'd it. I want to be Michael Jordan. I don't need to go hang out with him and play golf or fish. I actually don't care. Uh, I, I knew him in college, right? So I would want to be him for a day because they talk about an athlete like Tom Brady or Michael Jordan having the game slow down and to be so in the moment that they can see everything unfold in front of them in a way that I don't experience the world that way. Uh, you know, I can get pretty wound up sometimes and I don't have that presence of mind as people kind of overused expression. I'd like to experience that one day and not just on the, on the competition court or field, just in day to day, just having interactions with other people. Cause I think that that had to be the way they live. They, they are the way they live and not just turn it on and off for games. Right. So to have that kind of presence of mind would be pretty cool. Cause that's not natural to me. Second person would be print. What a, he, now he's dead, right? So, uh, but to have somebody who sees and hears the world that he did, you know, somebody like Quincy Jones, any of the great music producers, they hear the world differently. And I'm not musical at all. So, but you had somebody who was a virtuoso and several instruments, a keyboard and a guitar. He could sing, he could write songs, he could thought like a producer, he could dance, he could do all of it. I can't think of anybody else who did all of those things. So it would have been, I mean, a true Renaissance man. I would have loved to have been inhabit that per his body for a day just to hear and see the world the way he saw it. It would be nice to be able to dance for one day, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you want to make somebody, you want to make God laugh, let him see you dance, right? Is that yeah. <laughs> Uh, the third person would be George Washington. You know, I'm in the middle of a second audio book, the Ron Chernow book on George Washington. But the first one I read was, was His Excellency. And the reason he's fascinating to me is, you know, I think anybody who knows anything about him would, would say, well, he was a terrible general. 
terms of military strategy, made all these blunders. It's a wonder we're not under British rule today, right? Because he really wasn't the best field commander, if you will. It was his courage. He thought he couldn't be killed in battle, so he was always out near the front, even if he was a, when he was a colonel and when he was a, when he was general. He wasn't afraid of that. He was a superior horseman and athlete. He had uh, dignity. He had he had he had uh, self mastery, even though he had a little bit of a temper. You know who doesn't every now and then. But he had the, and he had, he could be a good politician. So he just kind of had all these things working for him that would uh, it'd be an interesting day to have, to have lived a day in his shoes. I, I, boots, I should say. Yeah, there you go. Uh, George Washington is on my list as well. And I think that the biggest one is people loved him so much, they wanted him to be king. And he had, you know, self mastery no ego, understanding wisdom, wisdom of politics and of power to say, that's exactly what you don't want me to be, right? Like he, he, he put away. it in motion. The reason, you know, people talk about who is the better president, Washington or Lincoln. And I think that's a, uh, who cares, right? Is it really right. great? But I would say one reason you would advocate for George Washington is he stepped down, he walked away. He didn't feel like he had to cling to power and yeah. somebody wants to hold on to power beyond you know, the, uh, beyond when they should have felt it, then you got you have issues. So uh, last question, legacy. you get to uh, you get to teach and impact people all the time. What do you want your legacy in the industry to be? I would like for people who have worked had a chance to work with me to say, you know, Jim helped me realize that it ain't about me. It's about my clients. And when I did that, I got a chance to do, I got a chance to choose the kinds of projects and clients that I wanted. And I never felt like I had to take projects just to print invoices, to keep the office lights on. I could say no to those. I could, I could subcontract them out. I could say, you know what, this may not be the right fit for us. Let me introduce you to somebody else who I think would do a better job. It would be, I gave people the freedom to fire clients, bad clients, or say no to work that they didn't want to do so that they get to pursue the things that give them the most joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, the things that make them make them happy. The Joseph Campbell, I don't know if you know the power of myth and Joseph Campbell helped his writing help inspired the movie Star Wars would have been very different if it hadn't been for his mm -hmm. writing because the hero's journey is a big part of what he talks yep. about. But what he advised his college students was follow your bliss. You know, if you follow your bliss then the life that you should be living is the one you're living. If you pursue what gives you joy and, and that, that's what I hope to do for my clients is they say, you know what, Jim freed me up to do the work that I love. My, uh, my father-in-law retired as an attorney and I've used this phrase a lot. Um, he said, the industry has switched from people serving people to lawyers billing entities. And he said, if you can just keep it to people serving people, right. life's better. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and to your point, I, I think that sales, you know, it's really relationship building and uh, fire the relationships that you don't align with and, and thrive in the relationships that you do get along with. Um, we always give everybody the uh, chance to close us up. 
so the time is yours. Anything else you want to share with, with the audience and uh, our industry? One, one thing that came up with people, if you, if you have some, if you have folks that are more junior that aren't in leadership roles right now, one, one of the themes that came up over and over again with folks was it's never too early. So start volunteering, be curious, right? Volunteer, raise your hand. And whether that's an internal opportunity to, to do something on a proposal or on a project that you may not have, they might have not normally thought of you for, volunteer, right? Be curious, learn what else is going on in the organization, not just your little slice of it. And it's never too early to start to lay the groundwork to do some things that'll help you take command of your career. You never have, you don't have to be a closer. You don't have to be a partner, principal, or rainmaker. If you do something, anything to, to bring work into the firm and maybe help close it, you're going to have more influence within the organization. So let's say you're a B plus or a minus engineer and somebody else is an A or a plus engineer, you know, when recession comes and it inevitably comes, who's going to be more valuable to the firm? the better technical expert or the person who adds more value, not just in billable hours and deliverables, but somebody who can actually help do more than that, can help you bring in or land those dream clients. Never too, never too early to start. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Jim, it was a pleasure having you on. We will make sure we, we uh, connect everybody with uh, the show notes uh, to the Seller Doer Academy. Uh, and Jim, how can people get in touch with you? My email address is jim at sellerdoeracademy.com. Seller Doer Academy. Hopefully those words are easy enough to spell. So jim at sellerdoeracademy.com. And if people are interested in the book, Becoming a Seller Doer, succeed at business development and take command of your career. The easiest way to get there, instead of having to hunt around on Amazon, just go to becomingasellerdoer.com and it'll take you straight to the Amazon page. I dropped the price today by eight bucks because I knew I was gonna do this podcast and I wanted to give your listeners a chance. I'll leave it at that price for a couple of weeks. Awesome. Some people listening to the podcast over the next month. and Hopefully you'll report fun. back that our podcast had the Oprah Winfrey effect and, and you sell a, a thousand bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, it was a pleasure uh, getting to talk to you. Appreciate your time and, and insight. And uh, thanks for what you're doing in the industry. Thanks, BJ. Hey, everybody, if you enjoy this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other seller doers. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us. Until next time, have a great week and a great weekend.